The light glowing from our Advent wreath is burning brighter. This radiance warms our hearts and fills us with joy. The Lord has done great things for us. Let us rejoice. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. Light three candles, see them glow, brightly so that all may know how three candles show the way, making our darkness bright as God's day. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Dear God, we carry many burdens and worry over many things. Help us to hear your promise in this Advent season, that in hearing we may receive the Spirit's gift of joy. And may our spirits be kept sound at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Amen. So great to see you as we gather on this third Sunday of Advent. I want to invite you to take a moment and share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. So it's a little bit odd not having snow outside, but I know I'm hearing over and over again that common consensus is we'll take it, we're good with this. So um, anyway, despite the fact that the weather is not what we typically have, it's still, uh, we're still involved in Christmas activities. And tonight at 5 o'clock, we will be hosting a uh, singing of the Messiah, at least parts of the Messiah. And uh, we have a choir and uh, an orchestra that will be here and... We, the congregation, get to be a part of the chorus. And so there are five or six songs that we will be singing along with the choir. We'll have books for you if you don't have it memorized and you want to uh, participate. But uh, we hope you'll come back tonight at five for this time of, of uh, participating and uh, enjoying this, this amazing uh, piece of art through which people have been blessed for a long, long time. And also take note that uh, next Sunday... We moved to a service schedule of just one service on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, and that will be the case for the next few weeks. And the, order, the uh, schedule is in your bulletin on the back. So just note that next Sunday we worship at 10 o'clock instead of 11, and uh, we'll be uh, in a combined worship service. We hope if you're here, you'll also be a part of Christmas Eve. Services at 5 and at 7 as we uh, come together to sing, to read the scriptures, to celebrate the birth of Jesus once again.
Today's Old Testament reading comes from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now I invite you to stand and sing the doxology as the ushers come forward to receive our tithes and offerings. Father, in this season when we celebrate giving, we now worship you as we present our tithes and offerings to you. We'd ask that you would use these gifts in ways that would be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
because of this child who has come, we can openly and freely offer our prayers of confession to God and, and all of our prayers to God. So I invite you to join me in the prayer of confession printed in your bulletin. And as, when that prayer is concluded, if you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers and we move into the pastoral prayer, when this prayer is done, please come and join me. Let us pray together. Our gracious God, despite your generous love to us, we have too often turned from your way to our own. We have tarnished the gift you freely gave. We have buried you so deeply in our hearts, the world doesn't see you. We have ignored your teachings. We have lived lives of apathy. We have built fences and fortresses to push people away. We so often ignore those in need. Forgive us, we pray. Free us from our sin. Free us from our captivity. Free us to live in the joy of your incarnate Son, in whom forgiveness is real, possible, and ours. Father, we do indeed give you thanks for the forgiveness of sins that is ours in Jesus. We come, we celebrate today, we rejoice in all that you have done in Christ and all that you are continuing to do. As we gather today, we come with a room full of concerns, burdens, hopes and dreams and anxieties and struggles. We come today confident that you are in the midst of all that we are facing. And so we lay all of these things at your feet. We lay at your feet those who are grieving, ask for your comforting presence. We, we pray for all who are struggling with health concerns. We think especially today of Karen Gardy and Carol McNeil, Calvin and Laurel Buecher, Warren Woolsey, Bill Getty, Phil Muecher, Evelyn Heil, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Everett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, and others who may be in our hearts today. We ask for your healing grace upon each of them. Father, we thank you for the ministry of this church. And today, we think about the Boom Club ministry, the ministry to little children on Wednesday nights, the focus Bible on our minds. Lord, how wonderful that that there are little children, three, four years old, who are learning the value, the importance of Scripture. We pray, Father, that through this class, that you will bless these little ones, that their hearts will always be turned to you. Bless every teacher and helper and assistant and every student. 
Lord, may the classes be energized by your spirit that these little ones who are so impressionable might be impressed by who you are in all of your glory. Father, we pray for the churches around us and we think of the Canadian United Methodist Church and Pastor Russell. We ask for your richest blessings upon them as they minister in their community and beyond. Pour out your grace to them. And may they be a beacon of light and hope and joy and a presence for you in Canada and beyond. And Father, we think of the world. We pray for this great refugee crisis. We ask, Father, that you will work miraculously and you will help your church to be, to be a, a means of, of home, finding homes and shelter and relief. Father, we pray that you will bring an end to war and conflict and fighting that is so prevalent in our world. Father, we pray for the ministry of your church around the world. We pray especially for Hudson Hess and Brenda Osterhus as they are ministering in Haiti. Protect them in their travels and may their work be fruitful. We pray for David Heisinger and sons Luke and Gabe as they come back to the States for some urgent medical treatments. And we pray that you would protect them as they travel and that you would bring healing to them. And Father, we again think of our brothers and sisters who do not have the, the freedom to gather for worship as we do. They don't have the scriptures as we do. We ask that you will help them to know your grace upon them, your protection, we pray, Father, that you will bless them with your word. That the Bibles they do have will be so meaningful and that you will use them to speak into their lives and that there will be continued work at translation and distribution and production so that more and more people will have the scriptures. We pray that you will give freedom to your church to read and gather around your word. Father, we thank you that Christ has come for all of us. We pray, Father, that in this world of conflict and strife, in this world of uncertainty and guilt and shame, let Christ be the focus. And may we find in him life and joy and mercy and truth. We pray this in his name, remembering the prayer that he teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever.
I invite you to stand for the gospel reading, which comes this morning from Luke chapter 1. Beginning with verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth's Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill her promise, his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. The more I read it and think about it, the more I realize that um, Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, is one of my favorites. It, uh, so many things about that book that speak to me and my life, and if you've read the book, perhaps you've had the same experience. But I was, I was thinking about um, this morning, I thought about a passage that Nouwen includes that I think describes a lot of just the foundation for what, we, what I want to talk about today. And so let me read for you just this brief passage that Nouwen writes. He's talking about the, the prodigal son who has gone away and what has, what's motivating him and what he's experiencing as he's in the far country. He says, it goes something like this. I'm not so sure any more than I have a safe home. And I observe other people who seem to be better off than I. I wonder how I can get where they are. I try hard to please, to achieve success, to be recognized. When I fail, I am resentful and jealous of others. When I succeed, I am afraid of others being resentful and jealous of me. I become suspicious or defensive and increasingly afraid that I won't be able to get what I so much desire or that I'll lose what I already have. Caught in this tangle of needs and wants, I no longer know my own motivations. I feel victimized by my surroundings and distrustful of what others are doing or saying. Always on my guard, I lose my inner freedom and start dividing the world into those people who are for me and those people who are against me. I wonder if anyone really cared for me. I start looking for validations of my distrust. And wherever I go, I see them. And I say, no one can be trusted. And then I wonder whether anyone really loved me. The world around me becomes dark. My heart grows heavy. My body is filled with sorrows. My life loses meaning. I am a lost soul. I think in many ways, that is descriptive of people who live in a world of sin's consequences. 
Because sin has entered this world and because sin pervades this world, we live in a broken world. We live in the kind of world in which there are terrorists and there are bombings and there are break-ins and there's corruption and there are drive-by shootings and there's greed and there are accidents and disease and death. Because of sin, we live in a broken world. And we live broken lives. And we live with so much shame and guilt and pain and hurt and disappointment and anxiety and fear. And because of our brokenness, we cause other people to feel the brokenness. And we live with broken relationships because a great deal of what we experience and what we wrestle with is because of other people. And a great deal of what other people experience and wrestle with, quite frankly, is because of us. We say things and we do things that hurt one another. And sometimes we do it on purpose. We disappoint each other. We cause great wounds for each other. And this is the kind of world in which we live. It's painful. It's broken because of sin's consequences. And we all know it's all too real. But I'm convinced that the deepest consequence of our sin, the deepest consequence of sin in our world, in our lives, is the distance that it creates between us and God. And in fact, it is that distance between us and God that causes all of this brokenness that we live with. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walk with God. There's a closeness, an intimacy with God. The minute sin enters the picture... There is distance. And it's not because God runs, it's because they run. The distance between us and God is not because we've committed such heinous sins, even though we may have, but it's not because we have committed these sins that then God looks at us and says, I can't stand these people, I'm going to run away from them as far as I can. It's because our sin causes us to now have a skewed, twisted view of God and we run from him in fear. And like Adam and Eve, we run and hide. And when God calls us, we don't want him to see us. Because of this distance between us and God, it creates this real and perceived distance. It creates a sense of apathy in us. If God is distant... If God doesn't really care that much about us and our lives and what we do and how we live, then what difference does it make? Do what we want. We just live for ourselves. We put ourselves right in the middle of everything. And every the 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 most important question we ask is, well, what does that mean for me? What does that have to do with me? How is that going to help me? 
And when you live with that kind of spirit, the default mechanism is not caring about other people or sacrificing for other people. And we don't really care that much if we hurt other people. His life's just about me. It's just about us. This distance from God creates all of the havoc. And while we're running away from God, we think it's because God is running from us. But the reality is he's chasing us. We aren't running in opposite directions. He's running the same direction we are trying to catch us. And we try, even in our best days, we may turn around sometimes and try to move back toward God, but it's sort of like being out in an apple orchard and seeing the perfect apple on a tree, and it's, but it's about 20 feet in the air, and you spend your whole time trying to jump up and grab it. Our best intentions don't really get us that close. So what does God do? comes to us. The prophet Zephaniah has described in the first couple of chapters all of the sin of Israel and God's judgment against them. I suspect Zephaniah is one of those books that we might say, really, that's in the Bible? I haven't seen that one for a while. It's one of those minor prophets hidden in the back, but it's a powerful book. Just three chapters. But those first couple of chapters, two and a half chapters, are all, are all about how Israel has turned from God and, and how God has, is pun- going to punish them for that. And then you get to chapter 3, and God says, in verses 15 and 17, here's the solution. I'm going to come and live among you. I'm going to be one of you. I am going to come where you are because you cannot get to where I am. And God comes. You know, there's some things you just can't do from a distance. It's pretty hard to parent from a distance. David Siemens used to tell us in counseling class, there are two things that are pretty difficult to do by correspondence course. One of them is counseling and the other one is swimming. And I think it's probably true. It's pretty hard to write a paper about swimming and learn to swim. You got to get in the water. You need somebody in the water to help. And you can't save from a distance. If someone has fallen into a ravine, you somehow got to get to them. Either you climb down in or you throw them a rope and you hold the other end of it. But there has to be closeness in order to save. You can't save from a distance. And God knows that. And so God comes to be among us. Jesus is born to be among us. And we tend to think Jesus may come for the good people. Jesus comes because finally some of these human beings have figured it out. Some of these human beings have gotten their life together. They're a lot better than all of these other people. They don't have the issues. And that's why Jesus comes. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, the prophecy that The word of prophecy that Mary sings and the Magnificat that we just read is all about God coming to the people who don't deserve it. And the people that in in our world of skewed priorities, they are at the bottom rungs of the ladder. It's the same thing Jesus says 
when he walks into the synagogue in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry, and he sits down and pulls out the, God, the book of I, the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to read. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind and to give, allow the lame to walk. Bring this, the year of the Lord's favor. And he puts down the scroll and he says, today you're looking at the one who's going to do this. It's not because we have finally reached a level of worthiness. It's because of who God is, full of grace. God is wired for grace. I didn't always believe that. You know, for a long time, I believed God was wired for judgment. And grace just sort of was like uh, the caboose on the end of the train that just kind of got stuck on there. But when I read the scriptures, and ironically enough, the more I read the Old Testament, the more I realize that God is wired for grace. Yes, there's judgment. But it's judgment in the spirit of grace. It's not though God doesn't, doesn't see, doesn't think about, I guess I'd use the word punishment or judgment the same way that we do when we have a tendency to want to punish our parent. You know, we tend to react and punish when we are embarrassed or hurt or angry or fearful. And often, our punishment is based on how we look and how we feel and what people are going to think about us when our child is not behaving the way we want them to. And that's not to say we always do that, but sometimes we do. But that's not the way of God. God is all about what's in our best interest. And when we sin and God comes and speaks into that sin of convicting grace and judgment, it is not to say to us, ha, ah, I caught you again, didn't I? You're going to pay big for that. You broke the rules. Rather, God's word of judgment is you do realize the beha- that behavior is leading you down a path of destruction, Right? You do realize that if you keep that up, it's going to lead to everything you do not want. It's going to lead to more pain and agony and death and destruction and difficulty and struggle. And I don't want you to experience that. I've got all kinds of other plans for you. Plans of life and joy and peace and grace. It's this way. But sometimes he needs to wake us up to get us to see that. And so sometimes his words are harsh. But it's always in the spirit and in the context of grace. And the question for us is then what do we do? How do we respond to that? The fact that Jesus comes as the image of God's nature and character and grace in the midst of our sin and its consequences. Zephaniah says in verse 14, beginning of this section... O daughter, and I'll add, sons of Jerusalem, sing and shout and rejoice. Be glad. 
celebrate. This is good news. Jesus says in Nazareth, when he reads from Isaiah, he has come to reveal the year of the Lord's favor. Goodness. I don't think the church celebrates enough. I don't think we exude joy enough. I think we, are, we have allowed the evil one to make us so enamored with our sin that we are ignoring God's solution in Christ. And that he has set us free. And that we need to celebrate and rejoice. We come together for worship to be reminded of who God is and what God has done for us. And it is glorious. But we also come for worship so that together we can express our gratitude to God. And we can sing and shout and, and rejoice and celebrate together. And it is, a, it is an, an act of trust to do that. Because the world isn't fixed totally yet. And every time we sing God's praises, every time we shout God's praises, every time we celebrate who God is and what God has done for us in Christ, it is an act of faith that God keeps his word, that God is who he says he is. And we do that even though we sing and we shout and we rejoice and celebrate in spite of Because we believe God is who he says he is. And we celebrate. And Zephaniah says to Israel, when you start living like that, when you start trusting me like that, and I get inside of you as a people, the rest of the nations around you are going to take notice. That's what happens when people are joyful. When people have the joy of the Lord in them, they take notice. We often talk in in the holiness tradition, in the tradition of our church, about being holy. And quite frankly, that often has communicated not joy, but sternness. Not grace, but harshness. No wonder people say, you know what, I'm good. I, I think I'll do, I'll just stick with what I've got. To be holy is to be like God. And to be like God is to be full of grace and joy and blessing and truth. And yes, sometimes judgment, but always in the context of grace and love. And I'm convinced that joy attracts people far more than fear does. You know, when I was growing up, the evangelism tool that we often used was the first question, if you died tonight... Would you go to heaven? Or even another question, if you died tonight, would God, why would God let you into heaven? And while there may be some value to that, I have a couple of issues that I've come to see in that. One of them is it, it implies that being a Christian is first and foremost about getting to heaven. And while I think that is an awesome part of it, I think God first and foremost wants to transform our lives now. And to give us joy now. And to fill us with his peace now and his grace and his holiness now and eternal life. But the other part of that question that bothers me is that it comes from a a place, from a foundation of fear. If we can just scare you enough, maybe you'll want to go to heaven. Maybe you'll want Jesus. 
And while there is a place certainly for being honest about the reality of eternal life, I think that the joy of the Lord in his people is a far more effective tool for people to understand who God is than to try to instill fear. The more I think about this, In our struggle to grasp it, I think it comes back to to an inability to believe that God truly feels about us the way He says He does. The prodigal son ran off because he didn't really believe his father thought of him the way he really thought of him. And I think that's our struggle too. And that's what fascinates me when you come to the 17th verse of Zephaniah's prophecy. God says, I will live among you because I, and you won't have to fear anymore because I delight in you. I delight in you. God delights in us. He likes us. We bring joy to God. Does he like everything we do? No. Have we arrived at every place, the, the place where he totally wants us to be? No. But he delights in us. You know, one of the foundational things that sets us apart from so many other religions of the world is our creation story. You know, you, when you read the ancient Near Eastern, other cre- the creation stories of the other ancient Near Eastern uh, nations around Israel, uh, human beings in the world are, are started either usually either by accident or as punishment. You know, gods have a battle, somebody loses. Okay, your punishment is human beings. Somebody spills something, the earth gets formed. Hey, you did it. Human beings, you got to deal with them now. And that's why in all these other religious expressions of worship and prayer, everybody is trying to convince, to trick, to cajole, to manipulate, to, to plead and beg with their gods to do what they want them to do because they know in their hearts the gods don't want to do good for them. They don't love them. They don't like them. They're a menace to them. It is only the biblical creation story that begins with God saying, I want to create. I want to create the world. I want to create people. I want to create everything on it. No one's making me do this. I want to do it because I want relationship with these people and I want them to know me and, to them and me to know them. And I want intimacy with them and that's why I've created them. And our sin skews that image. Jesus comes to reconfigure our skewed perspective of God. It's hard to get a handle on that. I think we wrestle all of our lives to believe that's true.
to really believe that God delights in us, that when we come to worship and we're singing praises to him, he is feeling joyful about us. I suspect that is why I have been intrigued for a number of years by something I read from Dennis Kinlaw. And he said that in the early centuries of the church, as theologians were trying to figure out what the church believed and didn't believe and all of these things, someone asked the question, if human beings hadn't sinned, would Jesus have still come? And there were a number of the theologians who said, yes. Even if human beings hadn't sinned, Jesus would have still come. And their reason was this. Because God likes us. Because God wants relationship and intimacy with us. The kind of relationship and intimacy that can come only by being one of us. We don't know. Scripture doesn't really address the question. But it does seem to me like that resembles the heart of God. But the amazing thing is, we did sin. And we sinned mightily. And Jesus came anyway. And why did he come? Because God loves us. And even more, God likes us. He delights in us. And he wants us to know him. And to let him redeem us. And heal us. Make us new. And you get to the end of this, in the New Living Translation, the very last words of Zephaniah's prophecy are simply, I, the Lord, have spoken. Period. It's not, it's not some kind of wishful thinking. It's not the impossible dream. It's the word of God. Period. And we're invited to experience Jesus. Holy Father, somehow help us to see who you are. What do you think about us? What you want to do for us in Jesus. Make us new. Heal us. And let it start with a new image of who you are. We pray this through Christ. Amen. I think Hark the Herald Angels Sing is one of my favorite Christmas carols. I mean, I I like it because Charles Wesley wrote it, and I like a lot of the things that Charles Wesley writes. But there's, there's powerful imagery in this song about why Jesus comes and about what God wants to do 
for us in the coming of Christ. So let's stand and sing this great carol together. the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.